Well, let's start off this morning with a little bit of trivia for you. Did you know that the average human brain weighs three pounds and is roughly the size of a softball? That sounds a little small to me, but I don't know. But here's the amazing thing about it. The brain is designed, it has enough computing power in it that it can learn something new every second for the next 300 million years. That's a whole lot more than the hard drives we put on our biggest computers. The brain is an incredible, amazing feat of engineering. And it would seem that God created us with an extraordinary capacity for knowledge and for learning. And perhaps one of my favorite historical examples of a lifelong learner is Leonardo da Vinci. We all know da Vinci for his paintings, The Last Supper and Mona Lisa, and I'm sure we know about the whole Renaissance man story. But he was not only an artist, but a brilliant scientist and a brilliant designer as well. They say he never went anywhere without his notebooks, that he was constantly feverishly sketching in. He recorded his ideas and observations about the world, and his journals contained countless ingenious ideas far, far ahead of their time. He designed something like a helicopter uh, kind of contraption called an ornithopter. He designed one of the first ever uh, um, scuba and diving suits. He even designed, but never quite executed, a robotic knight. The man was clearly uh, a very clever person, and even on his own deathbed, they say that he meticulously was taking notes on his own symptoms in his journal of how he was sick and dying. He was learning until his last breath. And now, at the end of his life, we have over 7,000 pages of da Vinci's journals that have been preserved to this day, all about things that he learned about this world in which God created. Now, in our day and age, we live in another kind of Renaissance era, I think. The early 21st century has been described by many as the age of information. And it's partially because that everybody in the world, it seems, has one of these in their pockets, these supercomputers. You know, I was struck by this recently, that something like, uh, I want to say, there is about a million times more computing power in your phone that you use to look up if restaurants are open or, or text your spouse if they locked the door before they left the house. There's about a million times more computing power in that phone than there was that sent the first space shuttle to the moon. We can teach ourselves a new language, read a new book, watch any film, learn how to play an instrument, craft any object, or train in any new career with these little devices that we have. But the question I would like to ask is why? With infinite learning, infinite free resources at our fingertips, just a few clicks away, why is our world in such a mess? All the problems that we seem to have, shouldn't we just be able to educate ourselves out of them? We have more knowledge than ever before, but instead of solving some of our problems, it seems like we're just creating more of them or just worsening the problems that we already had. 
And as wonderful as knowledge, as wonderful as learning is, and I'm a big proponent of learning, I think Christians should be lifelong learners, it's clear that the ultimate solution to our problems is not simply knowledge. And so in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul, along with his fellow pastors, Timothy and Epaphras, are praying that the Colossian church will not simply grow in knowledge, but they will grow in wisdom, in spiritual understanding, and a kind of otherworldly wisdom that is not just about retaining information in their head, but transforms the very way that they live in this world, and that they can live a life of obedience to God and a life of good works for one another. But before we get into that, first let's review where we've come from. Last week, as you recall, Paul was overflowing with gratitude to God for this little church that he had never met because he heard the testimony that Epaphras had given that these people were so sold on the gospel of Jesus Christ that it was starting to accomplish amazing things in their life by the power of the Spirit. They were becoming a people of active and obedient faith and love and hope. They had faith in Jesus. They had a love for other Christians, even the difficult ones. And they had a hope that heaven would come down to them one day in the resurrection. And because of that, Paul and the others are praying now. So they turn from praising to praying that these Christians would continue to grow in wisdom. And that would lead to a life of good works for the sake of one another and even a life of endurance and hardship. So Paul is reminding these Colossians that whatever their educational level, whatever their financial situation, they all can be experts. Every single one of them in the wisdom of God. So let's look, starting at verse 9 this morning. So let's break down what Paul is doing here. First, in verse 9, we're seeing he's moving from praise of God for what he's doing in the Colossians to a prayer to God for the Colossians. They're doing great in life, in the spiritual life. Not by being the wealthiest, not by being the most influential, not by being the most successful, but again, by simply having faith, love, and hope. Faith in Jesus, love for each other, and hope of the resurrection that they share with all of their neighbors. Friends, I really do believe that is a a succinct summary of the Christian life. Faith in Jesus love for one another, and hope in the resurrection. If you want to start by being a faithful Christian, start simply there. But let's be honest. Being filled with faith, love, and hope in our fallen world is not exactly easy, is it? It's not easy always to have faith when we see the immense suffering in our world and in our own lives. It's not easy to be loving even to our close friends and family who disappoint us so often. And it's not easy to to always have hope when your body aches, when you're missing a dearly departed loved one, when finances are tight, and when life is just overall discouraging. Paul knows this. He's not naive. He knows that the Christian life is a difficult one. And Jesus was not kidding when he told us to take up our cross, even on a daily basis. The weight of that 
and to follow Him. That's exactly why Paul says that the second he came to find out about the Colossian church, the second he knew about them, he began to pray for them. And his prayers are not vague, they're not generic, they are specific. How can the Colossians, who have been off to a great start in their Christian faith, how can they continue well? Paul says, by being filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 9. Now that sounds nice, but what does it mean? He talks about God's will, he talks about wisdom. How do we think about all that? British pastor Tom Wright kind of tells an interesting story. He remembers when he was sitting in his home and looking out uh, across the way. There was, there was a pond nearby, and he, he watched with such joy as this mother duck nurtured her little seven ducklings. And they were you know, in this small pond, but a, a time came when they were outgrowing that space. And so the ducklings were getting a little bit more mobile, but they were not altogether grown, not altogether independent. So the mother knew it was time to begin their exodus from that little pond to a larger lake nearby. But the journey was daunting. Because as he recalled, they had to cross some major roads on foot to get there. They had to cut through a local park with cats and dogs and other predators. They had to, as the old hymn writer once said, face many dangers, toils, and snares. But eventually the whole family made it safely. And this made him marvel. Because the ducklings didn't have enough knowledge and they certainly didn't have the wisdom to get to their destination on their own. Instead, they had to rely on someone who knew best and who loved them. Their mother. They had to know when to stop. They had to watch for her as she surveyed the path ahead. They had to know when to change course. And all thanks to her calm and confidence, they were able to make it safely to their new home. Right, ever the pastor sees this and sees a, a spiritual parallel for us. So he makes this observation. He said, human instincts, what comes natural to us maybe, is important, but they remain earthbound. When people become Christian, God implants into them a new sense of His presence and His love, His guidance and His strengthening. End quote. And so he goes on to note that this is why Christians must rely on a greater instinct than their own. They must rely on God's wisdom to get them where they need to go in life. They must look and look to and pray for God the Spirit to both strengthen them as they're growing, but to guide them safely as they mature in the faith. Because we all know how harsh and unforgiving and difficult this world is. We know that no marriage is beyond collapse. No family is beyond dysfunction. No job is, is beyond layoffs. No house is beyond fires and tornadoes and, and hurricanes. No human body is beyond, beyond sickness and pandemic and death. And no faith is beyond discouragement and doubt. We all know that very intimately, I would think. Yet God is 
at work in the hard and mysterious work of prayer in the Christian life. Through it, through Paul's prayer for the Colossians, through the Colossians' prayer for their own faith, through our prayer as a church for one another, through our prayer for uh, our community, God not only sustains His needy people, but even, against all odds, makes us flourish. Even when times are tough. Even when it seems like the world is in a spiritual drought, we can be growing, living by the streams of living water. That's why James encouraged Christians in his letter, especially when they're facing trials and hardships. Not when life is easy, but especially when it's difficult to pray to God for wisdom. Because God gives it generously. No questions asked. I'm convinced a major problem with the church in America today is that we're not a people that pray for wisdom. We rely on our own sense of the world. We rely on our own American ingenuity and spirit. But God tells us through His apostles to pray for wisdom. I wonder what it would look like if our church, every day, for a year, in our private and public time, simply prayed for wisdom. I wonder how we would see that we would grow stronger as Christians, that we would weather tougher storms, that we would, uh, we would skirt disaster, that we would cut off controversy from happening if only we prayed for wisdom. Wisdom, as you know, is more than just knowledge and book learning. And trust me, I'm a person that enjoys those things. I think those things are good. I'm a person that thinks tradition and rituals are good, but at the end of the day, all our human ingenuity and innovation and creativity and expertise or anything else that we think fills our life with meaning, all of that pales in comparison to God-given wisdom that we don't produce in ourselves, that we have to rely on Him to pray that He produces in us. People want to know, Paul talks about God's will for the Colossians' life. That is such a popular question with Christians. What's God's will for my life? I think Paul lays it out here in verse 10 so clearly. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Pray for wisdom that you can see God's will, which I think are just these three things which he lists in verse 10, to walk worthy of the Lord. That is, in obedience and faith. To bear fruit in every good work and to grow in the knowledge of God. That's God's will for everybody's life. I know it's so easy for us to want to kind of leapfrog over that and go on to, well, what's God's will in terms of you know, what I'm going to do about this insurance situation? What's God's will about what doctor I'm going to go to or, or what place I'm going to move into or what car I'm going to buy? Those big life decisions where we're going to send our kids to school. But what if we simply started for praying for God's will in these things? Walking worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God. 
I wonder if all the rest of that stuff would just kind of sort itself out. Because God would give you the wisdom through these things to deal with anything that comes your way. This is God's will for all of us, folks. Simple as that. This is the work that He has for us to be obedient, to bear fruit, and to grow in knowledge. And it's always been God's desire and His plan and intention for humanity. Let's for just a moment go back to the garden. God created humanity. He put them in a garden. He gave them everything that they could possibly ever want or need. And He gave them uh, the, the gift to, to flourish and to bear fruit by His wisdom. To, to trust and obey His Word. This all went helter-skelter when they decided, no, we don't want to obey God's wisdom and His Word. We want to follow. We want to make our own way forward. We want to do our own thing. Don't tell me what to do. That's when Adam and Eve were at their most American. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. See where it got them. When they went by their own wisdom, when they wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil, oh, they learned a lot about good and evil that day. And look at history since then. We know so much about evil. Oh, I wish we could go back to being ignorant about it. Letting God be the one that knows all about that stuff. See, God wanted them to flourish by His wisdom. And when humans decide, I'm going to flourish by my wisdom, they find that they wither. So they rebelled, and they found themselves in a long descent into misery. But God is gracious. He came and, and, and found Abram, took him out of the city of of Babel, of Babylon. He took him away from that great and evil empire that we read about in Genesis 11. And, and he's going to bring Abraham back into the garden. But even the patriarchs rebelled, went by their own wisdom, went by their own scheming, tricking each other, tricking everybody around them, not trusting in God's wisdom, and eventually it landed their family in slavery and Egypt, but God is gracious. He heard the cries of the, His people, of the oppressed we read about in, in Exodus 1, and He rescued them from slavery and, and brought them all the way to this land overflowing with milk and honey because He wanted them to experience the freedom that He intended for humanity, to, to live according to His love and His wisdom, but you remember how that goes. They did what was right in their own eyes, we read in the book of Judges. It just descended into chaos. Then finally he raised a king up out of them. Saul was not a great king, and David was he was fine, but even he was so bloodthirsty, God says, You can't build me a temple. And then Solomon came along, the wisest king to ever live. And but by the end of the story, Solomon's married to more women than there are probably in this county right now. And is going after his own thing. Everybody falls back into their their own wisdom, rejecting God's wisdom and Eventually, that leads into exile. God let us try to figure things out by our own wisdom, and it gets us into death and despair every time. But God Himself, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, stepped out of eternity and into 
time through the womb of Mary so that he could grow. This is a mystery of mysteries. That God Himself and Jesus Christ would grow and grace and favor with God and with man and one day surrender all of that, all that wisdom that He was cultivating, surrender that willingly on a cross for sinners like us. That sounds like foolishness to me. But what we think is foolishness, God says, is actually wisdom. In so doing, God finally dealt with our old wisdom, which is not a wisdom. With our human wisdom, He dealt with our old enemies, disease, despair, and death. Those were done away with. And now God wants us to, like Adam and Eve in the garden, to flourish again. And a new Adam in Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, who rose from death and By putting your trust in Him, you will rise from your death too. No one or nothing else that this world can offer you, no wisdom that it can give you, no work that it can tell you to do will provide you any greater joy than walking after Jesus the Christ, the wisdom of God in human flesh. He delights when we walk with Him in faith love and hope he loves it when we bear fruit of good works and grace and mercy to a hurt and scared and dying world and he is thrilled with us when we know him more and more and experience his love and our daily christian walk friends nothing in this world nothing no wisdom no work that this world can offer you Not money, not power, not fame, not pleasure, not genius, not beauty, not a single thing is worth striving for and worthy of praying for like being fully known and seen, yet loved and forgiven and delighted in by God Himself. Nothing. This is true Gospel power. And this is what Paul talks about in verse 11 that was secured by the glory of God's strength for us when we were at our weakest. So that no matter what heartbreak, no matter what pain, no matter what sorrow or ache comes our way, we will be able to outlive and outlast it all with patience and joy and even mind-blowingly with thanksgiving. See, what Paul is doing here is actually counteracting the false narratives of the Colossian church that they have to encounter in their daily life. The false promises of other teachers outside the doors of their church. See, there's false teachers that are offering wisdom and understanding in their day too. Wisdom, the word wisdom, is not just a Christian virtue only. Although true wisdom, we believe, is in Jesus Christ alone. But lots of people talk about wisdom. Lots of people talk about spiritual understanding. But their so-called wisdom came from uh, when these pagans worshipped Zeus and Hera. Or when these Judaizers insist that we must keep kosher and, and festivals for God to really love us. That was the wisdom of their day. Paganism or legalism. 
to be a pagan that worships many gods, or to be a legalist that works hard to earn God's favor, both may seem like spiritual wisdom to us in the moment, but in reality, they aren't. Why? Because they don't actually reveal God to us. Paganism just puts God as one in a lineup of other equally favorable options. Legalism teaches us that we can almost control God by how we, if we do these things, we can manipulate Him by our own behavior. But the God of the Bible that's revealed to us is so much more gracious and loving and forgiving than these false ideas about God could ever imagine. God isn't the spoiled, entitled, and fickle demigod of the pagans who just on a whim wipes out a whole city because he's having a fight with his wife. He's not like those gods. But similarly, he's not like the scorekeeping Pharisees God that flies off the handle every time you get distracted in your prayer life, every time you miss a day of Bible reading, every time you botch an opportunity for evangelism, every time you say an untoward thing towards your wife or husband or children. He doesn't utterly uh, just look to, to strike you with a lightning bolt the second you fail at pretending like you've got your Christian life all together. See, that's how the world views God. He's either just this capricious, just apathetic deity, or he's this angry warmonger that just wants us dead. Either way, he's not a friend to us. But do you want to know what God really looks like? according to St. Paul, then look at verses 13 and 14. He's the God that has completely rescued you from the domain and hopelessness and slavery of darkness. That's the world you were born into. A world of ignorance and malice and greed and violence where the only power that has any authority is the power to hurt or, 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 or to push down or to wound other people, He rescues you out of that empire. He's the God that transferred you from that darkness into the light and shining brilliance and glory of His kingdom. The kingdom ruled and reigned over by His Son who comes to us gentle and lowly and whom you have redemption from this hell on earth that we've created for ourselves, and whom you have forgiveness of your sins, the worst things you've ever done and the most inane things you've ever done, forgiven in Jesus. The capricious gods of ancient Greece and Rome, or the capricious gods of our own day, youth, Beauty, wealth, all the things that are prized, all the things that walk out on red carpets or make big premieres in Silicon Valley or Hollywood. You see these young people come up. I'm at an age now where all the young and beautiful people of my generation are considered old now. All the people that were the pop stars making millions of dollars, my Wife's little sister will make fun of us for that. That's, that's old people stuff. It's gone like a vapor. 
the capricious gods of America, wealth, youth, beauty, all that stuff, health that abandons us after 10 years. We don't live by that wisdom. Similarly, we don't live by the wisdom of, oh, God is so mad at me and I just got to pretend like I, I haven't sinned today and uh, oh, well, I'll, just, I'll, I'll be mean to these other people. I'll, I'll, I'll wag my finger at them because they're worse than I am. Maybe if I draw my, God's attention to them and not to my own sin, He won't be as mad at me because at least I'm not like this person over here or that guy. He hadn't been to church in a while. Or... That's not the God of the Bible. We're, we're not... We are not under the 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 under slavery to those kind of gods. We're under the grace and forgiveness of the God of the Bible, who's way more holy than those other options, and yet is way more merciful and forgiving. That's exactly who God is for you. That's exactly what the gospel means for you. And folks, this God who loves you at your absolute worst. Go ahead in your brain right now, that brain that can process a new thought for every second for the next 300 million years. Put that brain into work right now. And think of a day in your life when you were so wrong, so mean, so ugly, so nasty, so at fault that even you didn't like yourself. Think of that. That place right now That is exactly where God loves you without any conditions. He has no reservations about His forgiveness for you. That's the wisdom of God for you. So why do we rob ourselves of talking to Him in prayer? Why do we absolute, why don't we rather absolutely love to come together to ask Him to pour out grace and love and compassion and forgiveness and wisdom so that we may flourish and grow and bear fruit in His ways in this life? What keeps us from coming to Him? What keeps us from coming and confessing our sins and begging for forgiveness to a God says, I'll always forgive you. Will your own uh, friends and family forgive you like God will? No. He'll forgive you 7 times 70 times 700 times 7,000 exponentially on through eternity. Folks, we are invited into a life of godly wisdom that turns into a life of good work We're not saved by the good work we do. We're freed to do the good kingdom work that Jesus came to do. See, Christians are called to that, to to be imitators of our Master Jesus. We do good works in this world. We give to the co-op. We take up offering. We help a neighbor in need. We'll pull over and help somebody when they're broken down on the road. We'll go visit somebody that's elderly and alone. We'll help somebody that comes to us in need. Not because we, that earns us any favor with God. That's because out of the forgiveness and grace and gospel we receive, we start to become like Jesus Himself who freely gives these things away. See, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. We just read through Matthew. You read the Sermon on the Mount. You want to know what the kingdom of God looks like? It looks like 
those that are meek and poor and humble and desire righteousness and are persecuted for loving God and loving their neighbor. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. And one day, that kingdom that's been revealed in this church and other churches and other Christians around the world will be so totalized in this world when God will bring it to fruition that all the temptations we have to live according to our own wisdom by our own sins, all that stuff will be evaporated. And we'll be, des- we'll be like we were designed to be, growing and flourishing and giving generously like God Himself gives to us. That's the good work He has for you. So Christian, walk worthy of the Lord. Not perfect, but continuing to rely on Him. Bear fruit in every good work. You know what the Bible tells you, how you ought to be. You know the fruit of the Spirit. Grow in those things. Bear those fruits. And finally, grow in a knowledge of God. If you walk according to this wisdom, if you walk in that will of God, the good work and good fruit in your life will explode. It will grow and, 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 and be abundant. We were just reading last night how Jesus says, what, how can I compare the kingdom of God to anything? It's like a mustard seed which you can barely see. You plant that seed in the ground and it grows bigger than any other kingdom any other wisdom, any other power, it grows more beautiful and, and it's so powerful that it even provides shade for the birds. That's what the Christian life ought to be like. We ought to grow and bear so much fruit that out of the abundance of grace that God is cultivating in our life, that people that are just around us are blessed. Even if they're not Christians. What a glorious thing that God calls us to. But remember, folks, we're invited to a life of godly wisdom and good work not because we're perfect students of God and His Word, but because Christ Jesus was perfect for us. And isn't that a life worth praying for? Worth striving for? And isn't He a God worth knowing with every ounce of your being? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Jesus who saved us from dying in obscurity and spiritual darkness and transferred us into His kingdom of grace and love and forgiveness by His cross. Holy Spirit, we ask that You give us wisdom so that we will work and endure all the miserable things of this life with patience, joy, and thankfulness. And we ask this all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.